Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Jason Steinhauer. He's the program a program associate in charge of publicity and sorry program specialist sorry uh, in charge of uh, external relations for the John W. Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. He's a public historian, a recovering museum curator and archivist, a provocateur, and an institution builder. We hope. Um, Jason, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Um, you've written recently in the Inside of Higher Education, and it's in the uh, online journal Inside Higher Education, an article that caught my attention, and probably thousands of historians uh, looked at it and said, wow. Uh, it was called History is Hot Right Now. Can that help save the profession? Um, you noticed several different articles and events coming together in August, which gave you a certain hope that history had something to to contribute uh, to culture at the present moment. Um, what were those articles and why do you feel that? Sure. Um, well, um, it, it, uh, it sort of struck me all at once that um, the New York Times, Slate, Politico, and USA Today all had articles around the same time that uh, really were reaching out to historians to get their perspective on uh, contemporary issues, particularly issues related to what's happening in American society today with the election and with um, some of the um, police brutality and murders that we've been seeing across the country. So um, it was a manifestation, I think, of a trend that's sort of been growing where media organizations have been uh, seeking out the input of historians for some time now. Um, and obviously, uh, Politico has reached out to historians uh, in the past to get their perspectives on political issues. Uh, what Rebecca Onion is doing at Slate is really fantastic. She's built pretty much a history section of that website where there wasn't before, bringing history out to audiences um, through that publication. And um, so this kind of momentum has been growing, I feel like, but it all sort of um, appeared right before me in my Twitter feed one day or over a course of a day or two. And um, that kind of inspired me to write the piece. Um, you also quote a piece in Patheos, the uh, religious blog aggregator by historian who then said, um, as you point out, a, um, a sort of time-honored uh, custom. They then were unsure what historians actually have to contribute. Um, as I was saying in our, we were t chatting before we began, I remember back at around the time of 9-11, actually it was the AHA conference right after 9-11, a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle came to the AHA meeting in San Francisco and was saying to historians, gosh, you really need to, you, we need you now more than ever to explain our times to ourselves. And the reaction of, I think, historians was blank incomprehension, according to his article. I should look it up and, and link to it in our show notes. Um, so it seems that we have a great ability whenever this happens to not listen to the bugle call that you're describing. 
Well, perhaps we have a little bit of diffidence within our own ranks about what exactly we contribute, and and maybe we haven't been as good as we need to be in making those contributions known um, to the next generation, and maybe maybe that's part of the of the reason we see the enrollment declines in um, history. But um, but I think we have a lot to offer, and I think um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we do. Um, and uh, certainly in the last uh, few months or so, as this election season has really in, you know, become all engrossing in our country, um, more and more people are turning to historians um, to hear our voices. So do you think, um, I'm, let me go back to this, this question of diffidence, which fascinates me. Um, do you think that diffidence then actually is, and we, we could probably actually come up with some clever, old, clever PhD project, um, if diffidence is related to the decline in enrollment. I mean, do you think that's a relationship? Um, it might be. I mean, you know, nothing happens in isolation. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So um, I'm sure all of the I'm sure there are a lot of factors that contribute. Right. I think that there's there's probably some element of, um, you know, not enough people read our work. And so we lose a little bit of confidence there. Mm. Uh, there's probably some sense that um Maybe certain uh, technologies and certain trends have have moved has passed us by and and uh, we haven't kept up. So there's probably some some lack of confidence there. Certainly, um, the picture across universities in America today, where um, there's you know resources are being cut, um, faculty are not getting raises, uh, people are turning to adjuncts, um, and enrollments are declining uh, in certain disciplines in certain areas, I'm sure that contributes as well. So yeah. you know, there's, there's probably a lot of stuff going on. There's, and that's combined with a certain um, prickly defensiveness. Uh, so when we say, well, you know, um, gosh, Nick Kristoff, you know, we write lots of op-eds. Uh, we historians are very, you know, we write lots of op-eds. Or we say, well, you know, we write the books that are needed, not the books that people want us to read. They don't want they don't want to read the right things. Or we, or we could go on. Or you should just appreciate us for what we do. There, there, that is always combined uh, with that. We don't really like um, – It's there seems to be – and this is probably maybe the personality of people who are attracted to you know his academic history. We really don't like selling ourselves. Um, we don't like getting out there in people's faces and saying, listen to us. Yeah, I think that can be a challenge for some historians. I also think – and speaking of confidence and diffidence, I think sometimes from what I've heard from younger historians is they don't feel like they've – the confidence hasn't been instilled in them necessarily to go out there and be public faces and to talk about things that they may not have 100 um, percent expertise on. Um, right. Oh, no, so, no. I mean, graduate school in some ways drives that out of you. It's designed exact, to, designed exact. to destroy that sort of thing. So that's one of the things that we've actually talked about. I don't know. We'll talk about history communication later. But yeah. one of the things we talked about is the value of history communication. Part of it could be sort of reinstilling intellectual self-confidence in historians to be able to get out there more and speak, even if they don't have 100 percent of the answers that they would like to have in the toolkit. We've, we've discussed this question. It also seems to me you, you discuss um, the lack, the declining enrollments, um, universities uh, dropping uh, or just discussing, actually dropping or discussing dropping uh, history programs, uh, which of course has everyone very concerned. I mean, a lot of that has a, to do with a larger argument over the place of the liberal arts, which is I, I, other liberal arts professions are just as bad at advocating for their own existence as historians are, for, for sure. 
And in fact, as I've been pushing through with history communication and history communicators, I've gotten people saying, well, don't we also need philosophy communicators? And don't we also need religion communicators? And my answer is sure, but I'm not in those fields. I'm a historian, so I can only yeah. work on one at a time. <laughs> um, it, it isn't, I mean, and I will link to some of these. We we had, there has been even even a little podcast like our, my, our own. Uh, we've had people saying, gosh, you know, let's talk about uh, reconstruction, trying to understand the sort of Black Lives Matter movement. Let's, uh, we want to talk about this presidential race. So th there is this, uh, uh, this feeling uh, that you get, I get from the, the listeners to this podcast. And this uh, brings us to this question of history communicators and history communication that I want to talk about. You've been working on this idea for how long now? About, well, a little over two years. Okay. So it originally came to you uh, that science has had some really great communicators. Talk about that. Yeah. So I'm here in Washington at the Kluge Center, and um, one of our um, main research positions that we have here is a, is a chair in astrobiology. And it's through uh, my involvement with the astrobiology community that I uh, sort of gained some insight into science communication and science communicators and also uh, learned a lot about Carl Sagan and his role as a science communicator, sort of, you know, in many ways considered the first science communicator. Um, and it just sort of occurred to me over, you know, through conversations and just over time thinking and talking with people that, um, you know, really history hasn't made this kind of investment in communication that science has. And there doesn't seem to be any reason why we shouldn't. Um, communication is endemic to what we do uh, without communicating the results of our scholarship and the values uh, that our insights bring. Um, it's very hard for us to gain traction uh, with any of the various stakeholders that we want to gain traction with. Um, and yet we seem to take communication for granted. Um, so I started writing about this um, and people started sort of gravitating towards it and it's sort of built from there. So what, uh, how, how did you start? You started writing about this and there was a really um, incredible response. Um, you finally did a, uh, at which conference was it? The Public History, National Public History Conference? Yeah, so what happened was there was yeah. a call for submissions for the National Council on Public History, right. uh, which if your listeners uh, don't know about that conference or don't go to it, it's awesome. I really recommend we, it. We will, put a, we will put a link in the show notes. Um, so, um, so I decided to uh, introduce the idea of history communicators through a uh, panel proposal for that conference. And actually, the first person who reached out to me was Rebecca Onion from Slate. Mm -hmm. And she had been thinking along the same lines, basically, but hadn't sort of put the two words together. And um, so she was like, hey, you know, would you want to team up for this? And uh, and so we teamed up and we started recruiting some other people to be on the panel with us. And then once the panel got accepted to the conference, we kind of blasted out that we were holding this panel. And once we did that, a lot of people started writing in and be like, oh, my God, I've been thinking the same things or mm -hmm. I've been thinking similar things or so some people said oh my god this is the work that i feel like i'm doing but no one had put a name to it before so i think we just sort of tapped into some something that was in the in the atmosphere that um and maybe just kind of put a name on it and putting a name on it i think helped to give it definition so so what are history communicators then so history communicators as we've kind of sculpt, sculpted it out and i want to put the asterisk in here to say that I've been very careful to 
to not really put too much of a boundary around this because I want people to contribute their own ideas and, and vision and help co-craft what this ultimately becomes. Um, but we see history communicators as an identity, not a profession. So mm -hmm. you can be a history communicator within academia, you can be a history communicator within the public history world, you can be a journalist and be a history communicator. Um, it's sort of how you see your role in the profession as opposed to what your job title is, right? Um, so I see myself as a history communicator, my job title is program specialist. Um, basically, it's people who use um, their communication skills, their excellent communication skills, whether that be through digital media, through writing, in person or all, um, to communicate historical scholarship to non-experts, so people who are not also experts in that historical scholarship or in that field, um, through innovative, creative, and engaging ways. So, uh, believe it, so it, it turns out that I am a history communicator. I, you are. I, I did not realize that. Like the bourgeois gentleman, I find I, I speak in prose, and I am a historical gen and a historical communicator. Okay. okay you good. are a history communicator, absolutely. All right, okay, I'll put that on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. So, oh, so video, yeah. video production, plain English, all these without abstraction, all those cl classify as being a, histor a history communicator. Yeah, exactly. And there's no, you know, just as in the sciences, there's no boundary to science communicators. Some of them work on YouTube. Some of them work for magazines. Some of right. them work within universities, but they have a very like presence. So, we, you know, our goal all along is not to say that certain people can be and certain people can't be. The goal is actually more to create a community of people who see themselves in this role. Um, you're rather hard on traditional historians. You ask the rhetorical question, well, not the rhetorical, you answer it, um, the question of why can't traditional historians do that? Um, what's your response? Yeah, so initially when I put when I started thinking and writing about this, I was very much informed by my experiences here at the Kluge Center, where um, so many of my scholars were doing such amazing work, but the idea of sort of bringing it out to a larger audience and, and doing innovative new ways of communicating their scholarship just felt incredibly overwhelming to them. Mm. Um, they were under, and they still are, under such pressure uh, from their home universities um, to, you know, to teach this burden of classes, to deal with students, to attend faculty meetings. They're not getting paid a lot, so they're stressed out about um, the demands that they have, both work and family. Mm. In the meantime, they're, you know, trying to get tenure, trying to publish, doing new research, uh, many of them are younger, so starting new families. So it just didn't seem to me like there was a lot of room on the plate um, for for more traditional historians to take this on. Um, I think I've been convinced that that's actually not entirely true, and, and uh, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, I think there are some people for whom there really isn't any space to take this, this thing on, but then for others there is, and that's... Yeah. It, it's partly true, and what I like about this idea is it's entrepreneurial, and that's working around the sclerosis of the existing system where that exists. You know, not all the arteries are plugged, otherwise we would be dead, but um, some of them have to be bypassed. I mean, so that's what this does. Yeah, and I, and I think, so part of this too, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, is that we want to actually build this into the curriculum, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, we have actually created a, a history communication syllabus, intro to HISCOM syllabus, that we put up on our website. And, um, and we want to see some of these skills and processes and um, ideas implemented into 
the training of undergraduate and graduate students. And if that's the case, then it becomes more endemic to the profession. And it's not like, you know, people will be asked to add something else to their plate. It'll just be rather part of what they understand uh, being a historian to be. And yeah, and so this would also enable people with a history degree to uh, act as in that role in lots of different jobs other than becoming a professor. Exactly. Or, or as one cynical uncle said, getting a job at one of those history corporations. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, Jason, back in April, you had a post. Um, basically, you would visit a public university in the Midwest, both and met the graduate history program students, both masters and PhD. Um, thought they were great, but of course, what they were anxious about is future job prospects. Um, you, what what's your thought about history communication as increasing the possibility of future job prospects for such anxious graduate students? Yeah, I mean that that was a really extraordinary visit. I loved my time there. I had such a great time with the students, but I was so sad to see how anxious they were about their future. And that seemed to me like, you know, you're in your twenties and you're in your prime. You know, it's it's it just kind of hurt me like viscerally. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the inspiration for that piece. But actually, uh, I am an optimist on this issue. I do think that um, that the, the job growth in history is going to be on the communication side. What do I mean by that? Well, um, there are more and more popping up these sort of scholarly communication jobs where uh, universities, either within departments or um, through their communications departments, are, are looking for people who can sort of uh, communicate to wider publics uh, what their faculty are researching and why it matters. Uh, that to me is a history communication job. Um, there are um, uh, media outlets uh, that are looking to create history sections. Uh, and if they have history sections, they're looking for history writers to contribute to those history sections. Those are history communication jobs. Um, as I mentioned uh, before we got on the air, the Smithsonian just posted a job for a history writer for its website. Um, there are jobs like that popping up that I see. Um, so it, there's even a job recently that was like, it was an archivist job, but a key component of the archives job was to uh, write content for the blog of this particular organization and be active on social media and sort of communicate the value of the archive to its stakeholders. That to me is a history communication job. So. Mm -hmm. So I do see some growth in this area in terms of positions. It's not overwhelming. It's not enough to sort of give everyone out there who's looking for a position something. But I do think that there is uh, some cause for optimism there. And I hope that some of the training that we're implementing um, will prepare people for those jobs and be able to let people go to those interviews saying, hey, I've, I've got these skills. What kind of training um, are you preparing? What do you envision as part of this training component for history educators? Sure. So if people go to historycommunication.com and click on our syllabus, we've posted a preliminary syllabus and we've asked for suggestions to improve it and add readings and activities to it. But basically, uh, it's a combination of some... Um, introduction to historical thinking and historiography mixed with uh, media literacy um, and media training mixed with practical on-the-job type of activities such as uh, designing podcasts and making videos and finally it ends with 
um, a week on economizing your skill set, which is essentially sort of thinking about the business practices of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we've kind of built as an intro course. There are people who are interested in building that out to be actually a certificate program that would include specific activities in you know writing for general public, um, blogging, uh, production, uh, video and film, more media classes, more communications classes. So it really, it's sort of, it's a hybrid in a lot of ways of some stuff that's existing, but pulling it all together under one. uh, What do you mean by economizing your skill set? If I I might, I'm I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Yeah, um, we, that may not, you know, that's a a new kind of thing we've just come up with. Um, Basically, uh, a lot of what we heard from people as we developed this idea for history communication is how do I make this economically viable, right? Mm-hmm. And whether it's entrepreneurial uh, or whether it's working within an existing institution. Um, so it's kind of like selling your skills, understanding what your value is in the marketplace when you have this kind of training under your belt, and then looking at the various career options that might be available and where some of the trends are for hiring in this area. So it's, it's thinking entrepreneurially about who you are and what, um, what round holes your peg can fit. That was an excellent history communication sentence. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. You may take it uh, free of charge. Thank uh, you. Yeah, uh, not next time though. Then, then there'll, there'll be a, there'll be a price. That was uh, the first one's free. What, um, where do you see that going? You're, you're hoping. So you're hoping it'll be a certificate at multiple different institutions. Is that and and then and then what? So the idea is that what we put up is supposed to be inspirational as opposed to prescriptive. So basically, people can take it and adapt it uh, for what works at their university. So mm-hmm. Syracuse University, for example, is someone we've been talking to. They've obviously got a really strong communications program with, at Newhouse. So this may live inside Newhouse and may really pull on the communications department more than it pulls on the history department. Mm-hmm. At a place like UMass Amherst, which is already looking to um, implement this, they've got a really strong public history program. So this may more live in the history department and may draw on some of the skills that their history department and public history department has and maybe less on the media stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is to sort of allow people to design this in ways that uh, make most sense for their institution. But really the end goal is twofold. One, to have more undergraduate and graduates coming out of historians' classes, uh, historian programs, history programs, excuse me, um, with this skill set and with the confidence that they can do this. Uh, And two, to create a community of people who identify themselves as history communicators in some way. And from that community, we hope to build um, some ethics, some guidelines, some best practices, uh, maybe even down the road have our own journal, sort of like science communication has its own journal, you know, have our own literature where people talk about the successes and the opportunities with history communication and some of the challenges or uh, areas that it can be improved. Um, You know, so we're hoping to really build the field in a discipline. Uh, okay, um, let's we, let's get to some. I, I want to get to a little lower foundation in the in our last ten minutes or so. Um, a lot of this presupposes that history actually has a value to people. Um, certainly, the journalists think so. You've been saying we need to respond to public interest, public um, public demand uh, that the journalists are expressing from Politico or what have you. Um, and yet, historians are still different about this. Um, you know, here's my take on this. Um, we really hate 
that Santiana quote. Um, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. I mean, we really hate that. We hate, for the most part, um, I suspect there's going to be a change on this. Most historians at this point are dismissive of the idea of historical cycles. Um, we don't like the idea of cyclical thinking. Um, therefore, we are very well aware that people in the past have not learned from their own pasts and have repeated lots of mistakes. So therefore, we are historicists. And yet, when it comes to the uh, inability of humans to learn from the past, we are actually essentialists. Uh, we don't believe that histor historically changes. We believe that humans are always stink at learning from their past. I think that's, I think I, I hesitate to generalize. Um, I'm an academic historian after all, uh, but that does seem to me what a lot of historians prevents them from be, believing that uh, history has something to communicate to the present day. Um, I should say that everyone else seems to have 180 degrees a different attitude towards history. They really believe that we can learn from the past. Uh, they want to learn something about the past to explain their present moment. Um, they want to make lists of best presidents, worst years, worst presidential candidates. This is of obsessive interest to everybody, apparently, but academic historians. And it's a very hard golf to jump. <laughs> Yeah, well, you've, I mean, there's a lot there to say. Yeah, well, we can. Uh, this is we're just we're just you know we're just talking here. So. Yeah, just riffing. Just no, riffing. no one else is listening. Um, yeah, I, gosh, where to start? Uh, yeah. So one thing I think just with the tail end of your of your um, <clears throat> statement there, I I'm not actually sure about that. I mean, I've met a lot of academic historians in the last few years here at the Kluge Center and other places, and I think there is sort of a general um, belief and care, caring um, in having their work be applicable to the present day and that it can have some impact. But I think as we talked about at the beginning, we haven't always been really good about defining what that impact is. Right. Um, and so that's that's part of the challenge. And, you know, that's something that I know the American Historical Association, for example, you know, is working feverishly on, um, you know, and, and, and sort of how you frame that impact, how you communicate it depends on the audience and the stakeholder. Right. So um, for if you're trying to reach policymakers, uh, people on Capitol Hill, um, it really does have to be tied to some sort of issue that they're wrestling with um, in their in their lives because their their schedules and their lives are just too busy to fit in anything else that doesn't involve immediately what is in front of them, you know. And so, but within that, there's a lot of opportunity, right? So, okay. so um, members of Congress are interested in veterans' issues and and they're interested in taxation and they're interested in foreign affairs and they're interested in um, domestic policy and so. All of those things, um, there is a past there that can be researched and excavated. When we're talking with students, though, and with parents of students, like I mentioned in the in the Inside Higher Ed piece, you know, a lot of those decisions these days are coming down to economics, uh -huh. and um, that may be a product of the 2008 recession and the way people are feeling about uh, their current economic opportunities in this country and also the opportunities that may be available to their students and their kids. Yeah. Um, but what history, I think, has not really done well um, is articulate 
the fact that you can make a decent salary in the history profession and that you will be able to pay back your student loans and that you will be able to um, live comfortably in the United States. Now, whether that's actually true or not, <laughs> that we need to look into some more. I think it's true for some people. It's not true for other people. Well, I, I think certainly I would, would claim to my undergraduates that what you're learning from a history degree, uh, what you learn from a lot of liberal arts degrees, um, well, we could talk about historical thinking, um, which obviously is a great name for a podcast. Um, those are certain skills that are applicable to lots of things. But in a liberal arts school, you're learning how to read, write, and speak, uh, which turn out to be highly useful for the rest of your life. Uh, if you can read uh, uh, for a point, for an argument, and be able to express it, if you can write and speak with eloquence, these will be of great advantage to you. Yeah, I think if you look at what people are, they've done surveys about what people think are the most important job skill moving forward. And number one is always communication. Yeah, right. right. So, um, but again, that's the irony, right, is that we know communication is important. We think that history and liberal arts teach good communication skills, yet we haven't really focused on it. Yeah. No, we don't. Uh, we, ha- so, we, we have the communication department to do that or something. Yeah. Right. So another reason why history communication might be a good thing to integrate our, into our curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, just on a side note, in talking with various schools about history communication, one of the ideas they're excited about it because they feel like it might actually pull over some students from the comms departments into the history departments. Yeah. And in a lot of schools right now, the comms departments, the enrollments are way up. Yeah, it's the, it's, the psych, yeah. it's the psychology department of the 21st century. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, one of the benefits just on a very practical level for schools of implementing this might be, one, we're teaching your students communication skills, which you're going to need. Two, we can uh, attract some communication students into the history department to work on historical projects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what... Um, Jeez, I, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, what finally, as we as we sum up, what are your uh, what are your next hopes for the sort of the history communication movement? What do you what do you envision happening? What's your dream? Well, one of my dreams just became a reality. We put up some new videos on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, that I'm really proud of. Well, and we will link to those. They're very nice. Thank you. Um, the reason I'm proud of them is because they draw on recent historical scholarship. But they're presented in a visual, graphic, and engaging way, and they have footnotes. Which is <laughs> they, most they do. They have, they have footnotes. Yeah. So you know, I think uh, I want to see more historians taking risks like that. I want to see us trying new things um, and bringing. And that's the thing: when we try new things, we don't have to sacrifice our principles. I think that's one of the things I want to show with these videos. You know, to be on YouTube and do things in a fun, engaging way, you don't have to sacrifice. The scholarship. You don't have to sacrifice even some of the conventions that we've worked hard to establish within our own field, such as footnoting and sourcing and things like that. Um, I just think there are a lot of opportunities for historians to uh, take more advantage of the tools that are out there to us. Um, and I hope that those videos can provide a little bit of inspiration to people. Um, to do so if we're um if we're just brainstorming here what are some other i mean once again it's riffing no one's listening um what other ideas could we come up with for history communication in addition to youtube videos um like right now i'm using for example pedagogically i'm using reacting to the past which is an awesome pedagogical tool uh, we've discussed that um with its uh initiator mark harnes on this podcast before um I've wondered, and we've talked with Kellyanne Adams, uh, who's a game designer, about how she's used games for museums. I've wondered how 
uh, and I'm not a game geek at all, but they, it's been so successful, I've wondered how to not just use that pedagogically, but in terms of a communication experience. Um, yeah, I think you've hit on two really big ones. Number one is the uh, gaming is huge, right? It, it is. It's much it, bigger than than adults realize. Let's put it it's, that way. It's humongous. I mean, like the they get ten times more viewers on the gaming championships than they do for the Super Bowl. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Right? It's the the sales of games on the first week make Hollywood, you know, basically fall dead uh, in in stupefaction. It's just crazy. Yeah. And uh, I recently saw an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, obviously famous science communicator, about you know what he tries to do. And he, he's very honest about the fact that he, as a science communicator, is purposeful about going where the audience is. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's hard, it's really hard in this current climate to ask people to come to you. You, if you have something to sell, you need to go to them. And um, so I really applaud the people who have ventured into gaming as a way to um, bring historical knowledge to new audiences. I think that there's so much more room for collaboration there um, with the platforms themselves. I mean, the people who make the gaming, like the Xboxes and the Nintendos of the world, you know, what kind of partnerships could we design with them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the sky's the limit. You know, yeah, just someone like the AHA or NCPH who sort of has that clout and mm-hmm. that position, you know, to come to them and start those conversations. I also think that mobile technology, we're just not really capitalizing on that as much as we could. There's Clio, which is a great first step. You know, that app. Yeah. Just, just describe that app. Uh, we, uh, we haven't talked about it. We should talk to the guy who did it, but go ahead. Yeah, so I I, I, I hesitate only because I don't want to say anything wrong or incorrect. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but uh, but from what I understand, it's geolocational. So basically yeah. you can turn on the, the uh, GPS on your phone, and then as you move around in various places, you get information about historical sites and historical events that may happen near you. Yeah, it, it's, and, it's, it's crowdsourced. It's sort of a, a Yelp for historical places. Um, yes, but yes. Where, where people are adding their own, I, but I should say in this case, uh, people are adding content. If there's a, a marker or an event that happened on this site in 1877, you can upload that and describe it. And I believe they're verified, but although I'm not certain how it's verified by some external source. So it's a, a mashup of geolocated Yelp and Wikipedia um, is my elevator speech for it at least. I don't know how that works. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've seen that description before. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, but I think the the overall takeaway is, well, there's two. One, one of the reasons why history communication is so great, because it's never going to go out of style, never going to be obsolete, right? There's always going to be new communications platforms for us yeah. to take advantage of. And so we need to be teaching that in the schools, and we need to be keeping up with that as a profession. Um, but number two, when new technology first comes out, it's going to come out of Silicon Valley. It's going to be, you know, first piloted by the entertainment industry, by business, um, and by uh, other sectors. And then eventually it'll make its way to academia. And I think that's an advantage because we don't have to be um, at the cutting edge of technology. We don't have to be the beta testers on new technology. We can wait to see what's working, um, what communications tools are most effective, and then we can partner with those um, organizations and companies to leverage those. Yeah, although I think, and I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, I think augmented reality is going to be a big deal. Uh, I think that in some ways augmented reality is um, best suited for for public history, for it enables any uh, town or village to become in a Williamsburg. Um, 
uh, it enables uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, curators to appear in your uh, your glasses or your whatever to show what's going on, what happened here. Um, I think it's a really big opportunity for history communications when it comes. Yeah, and those will be great history communicator jobs that I yeah. hope all future students can can take. Um, so yeah, I will say this: I have been I have been asked to give a couple of lectures on like the future of history. It's kind of like this, you know. There's a lot of future of histories out there these days. Yeah. I always start my talks with saying that humans have been terrible predictors of the future yeah. all throughout history. So, you know, there's going to be things down the line that we don't see. And what we expect to happen will probably not happen. So. And on that um, note, which I think is optimistic, uh, we thank our guest, Jason Steinhauer, um, histor history communicator and um of the John Kluge Center, uh, John W. Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor, is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.